Well, if you have your copy of Scripture, go ahead and turn to Romans chapter 2. We are picking back up in Romans 2, and we're going to look this morning actually um, at the end of the chapter, something we touched on last week, but I thought it would be good for us to take together the end of chapter 2 and the very beginning of chapter 3. So we're going to look this morning at Romans 2, 25 down to 3, verse 2, and if you're using the church Bible, you'll find that on page 940. And as usual, I know that you'll find it helpful to have a copy of Scripture open, reading along with me. And before we look at God's Word, let's pray and let's ask Him to bless the preaching of His Word to our souls this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do ask again that you would bless the ministry of your Word. You have said, as the rain comes down from heaven and waters the earth and causes it to bring forth and bud, so shall your Word be that comes forth from your mouth, that it shall not return to you void, but it shall accomplish the purposes for which it was sent. And so we pray that you would send forth your word from your mouth. We pray that you would cause it to accomplish purposes of grace in our hearts, that you would cause it to sink down into our ears and into our souls. We pray that we would see and hear and know the Lord Jesus Christ because of it. We pray that you would stand as the great prophet, priest, and king of your church this morning, Lord Jesus. And do what only you can do in mediating the preaching and receiving of your word. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Romans 2, beginning in verse 25. There, Paul picking up on the argument that he has been making to Jews who thought they were in a better standing with God because they had the law and because they were Jews and because they had circumcision, that somehow they didn't need redemption, that that was redemption enough, that they were then good enough in themselves to kind of work out the rest for their standing before God. And so Paul, picking up on one of his last arguments to unbelieving Jews here, says, for circumcision indeed is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is uncircumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly. And circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from men, but from God. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way, to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. Well, there is a fascinating bit of church history that has its roots right here in southeast Georgia. As some of you know, two of the greatest itinerant preachers who have ever lived in church history made their homes here for a short period of time. George Whitfield, who came over first, and then John Wesley and his brother Charles Wesley, who came and were preaching the gospel up and down this area. Whitfield came to Savannah. Wesley settled on St. Simon's Island. And Two of the greatest figures in church history, both for their sermons, their preaching, their hymn writing. And yet, there's a fascinating bit of history about them that you may not be aware of. They were both students together in Oxford in the early years of the 18th century. And they belonged to a club that the Wesley brothers had actually founded called the Holy Club. And the Holy Club would engage in 
uh, long times of prayer, submerging themselves in Bible reading, feeding the poor, visiting widows and orphans, and fasting every Wednesday and Friday until 3 p.m. And Whitfield and John Wesley were very devoted to the Holy Club and to this life of strict pursuing of godly living and, and using all the means God had appointed for godly living. But what you may not know is that while they engaged in that during their time in Oxford, neither man was converted. And interestingly, Whitfield came to the States and went back and was converted. Wesley came to the States, tried his hand at preaching the gospel, failed miserably because he was unconverted, went back heard someone reading Martin Luther's preface to Romans, was cut to the heart, the Lord opened his heart, his chains fell off, his heart was free, he rose, went forth, and as he wrote, followed thee. And Whitfield, when he went back, started reading a little book by a guy named Henry Scugel called The Life of God and the Soul of Men, and he was converted. Now, why do I tell you that story? I tell you that story because there is a remarkable similarity between George Whitfield and John Wesley and the Apostle Paul. The Apostle Paul was an extremely religious man. He was a man devoted to prayer and scripture reading. He was a man devoted to fasting. He was a man, no doubt, devoted to acts of mercy ministry in Israel. And yet he became the chief persecutor of the church. And he, in all of his religious zeal, was uncircumcised in heart. He was uncircumcised in heart. And notice in the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we have that very unusual and sometimes uncomfortable conversation about circumcision and what yet one you need to really understand and come to terms with. And one, interestingly, as well as the Apostle Paul knew the Old Testament, one that he did not understand until he stood and heard Stephen, the man who he ordered the death of, go through the entire Old Testament, talk about how it pointed to Jesus. And then in Acts 7.51, Stephen said, and I believe this was probably the first time it ever hit Paul, and it hit him in such a way that it left him in bitter anger and zeal. Stephen says in Acts 7.31, to then Saul of Tarsus, he says, you are uncircumcised in heart. You are uncircumcised in heart. Now, Paul should have known the theology of circumcision, and I think when we come to this passage, now that he is converted and he is the Apostle Paul and he has undergone the same regeneration, he's had the new birth that Whitfield and Wesley underwent, and as he now has experienced the grace of Jesus and he gets it and his eyes are open and his chains have fallen off and his heart is free and he's felt the gospel in all of its power and he's gotten the righteousness of Christ imputed to him and he understands what it is not to work for your salvation which is what Wesley admitted he was doing in the secret depths of his heart, working for his salvation. And when you get that, and and it comes with full force, you can understand why the Apostle Paul is the one putting so much into Romans chapter 2 and so much in his argument to the unbelieving Jews who have rejected Jesus. And you cannot say that he's anti-Semitic because he himself was a Jew. You cannot say the Apostle Paul was anti-Semitic. The Apostle Paul understands that external religion in the Old Testament in Israel, among the covenant people, we'll call that God's holy club. That's the holy club. That means nothing if you don't have the internal realities. All of the covenant privilege, all of the external signs of the covenant, 
all of the benefits of being a part of the covenant people mean nothing if you don't have the internal realities. And that's Paul's whole argument there in verses 25 to 29. And notice that as he's moving from talking to them about the demands of the law, that the law demanded perfection, and that they thought they were justified in keeping the law. And he said, don't you know you need to keep all the law? And then he moves to the idea of them trusting in their circumcision. Let me say this. You could just as easily put baptism or profession of faith in where Paul writes circumcision through this whole passage. So you don't get a pass. It's incumbent on you to think about baptism or a profession of faith or any other external mark that was ushering you into the covenant community, into the church, visible covenant people of God. And notice here in the Old Testament, Paul is saying to those who would say to him, look, we're the covenant people. You're telling us Gentiles, you're telling us Gentiles are, are, are as good as we are. And Paul's saying spiritually for your standing before God that you are just as bad as everybody else. And in fact, if you trust in the covenant sign, if you trust in the external, and God gave that sign, if you trust in any of your standing whatsoever, if you say, well, I made a profession of faith when I was seven and you're trusting in that, or you say I was baptized by such and such a minister at such and such a church and you're trusting in that, you are doing exactly And listen to me very carefully this morning. There are multitudes of people that are trusting in these things. There are multitudes of people that are trusting in some sort of religious privilege in their minds. And Paul is saying, if you are, in the end, you get nothing. You will not get eternal life. You will fall under all the judgment that he's talked about. You know, it's interesting to me that there's a sense where you're reading Romans 1 and 2, and you're just kind of like, Paul, why can't we just get on to chapter 3 at the end of chapter 3, and why can't we just get on to chapter 5, and why can't we just get on to chapter 8? I love those chapters. Why can't we just get on there? And the Apostle Paul felt it necessary to continue disarming everything that keeps people from coming to Jesus Christ experientially. That's what he's doing. He is systematically taking away every weapon that men grab onto to keep them from coming to Jesus in their hearts, to keep them from coming to him in Christian experience. Not just mere head knowledge, not just choosing to go to a church that preaches the Bible, not just making a decision to get baptized, but keeps them from coming to Jesus experientially in communion, coming to him spiritually, having, as Paul says, a heart that is circumcised, being renewed in the inner man. And so notice as he starts to unpack, the first thing he tells us is that God's external means are worthless without the internal reality of grace. The external means are worthless without the internal reality of grace. And there you'll see that he goes through a very complicated argument in verses 25 and 26. And we can distill it down to this, that Paul is saying to Those Jews who have rejected Jesus have rejected the gospel. And remember, that's the message in every synagogue in the book of Acts. Every time the apostles go into a synagogue and they preach to people, every message is the same. God sent Jesus to be a deliverer and a savior. You crucified him. God raised him up. Repent and you'll have your sins forgiven. Every message is the same. They're all nuanced a little bit differently. But the preaching of Jesus Christ is the central message. And in that message, and listen very carefully, 
In that message, God strips away anything you can hold on to. Isn't that wonderful? That's the point of the message of the gospel, is that when you hear the pure preaching of the gospel, God is taking away anything that you can hold on to except Jesus Christ. He is saying, essentially, you cannot hold on to your circumcision. You cannot hold on to your baptism. You cannot hold on to your lineage. You cannot hold on to any identification that you have. You cannot hold on to that your father was an elder in a church or that your grandfather was. You can't hold on to that you grew up in a solid church and all these other churches are bad, but I grew up in a good church. Everything is ripped out of your hands in the preaching of the gospel and Jesus is held forth. And that's the one thing that made the unbelieving Jews and makes unbelievers today the most angry and the most livid is to hear that nothing you bring to God will put you in a right standing. And only if you come to the Lord Jesus will you have life. And notice what Paul says as he deals with this. And this was exactly what Jesus dealt with when he interacted with the Pharisees. They would oftentimes appeal, wouldn't they, to we have Abraham. We have circumcision. Moses gave us circumcision. We have Abraham. Who are you, Jesus? We have a lineage. We have a pedigree. Um, I was a student supply of a church for um, a short period of time and actually many churches through seminary and whatnot. And in one in particular, a, um, a family had come to the church and they had come from a background that had many generations of Christians. Um, we might call this a sort of a hyper-covenantal that you just expect your children are going to be Christians because you're Christians and their children will be Christians and generation after generation. And, and there were families that could trace their, their believing generations all the way back to the reformers. And that's a, that's a beautiful thing. We should want that. But I'll never forget when they came to this church and I started to tell them some of the things that they would find were weaknesses in the church. I like to lead with that and say, well, we definitely have problems. Here's some of the things that we need to grow in. I'll never forget the woman said to me, she said, well, that's nothing a few generations of Christians won't fix. And I I remember thinking, "Did, did she just say that? How about that's nothing the gospel won't fix? Now, how about that's nothing Jesus won't fix? There's very subtle ways that people hold on to exactly what Paul is teaching against. We call this covenant perversion. It's resting in the externals. We talked about that last week. The formalism, the externals, trusting in those things. And our hearts are always ready to grab onto those things instead of grabbing onto Jesus. And let me say this this morning. Your heart is going to grab onto something. I don't care who you are. I don't care if I know you well or not, your heart is grabbing onto something. You are trusting in something. And Paul's dealing with those who have very nuanced legalism, and they're saying, look, Paul, we're the covenant people. We have the covenant promises. We were set apart by God. We're different than the Gentiles. We're not like those people over there. And Paul says, listen, your circumcision, if you break the law, and he's going to tell them in the next chapter, everybody breaks the law. Nobody's kept the law. Your circumcision's counted as uncircumcision. That means that any external Jewishness means nothing. That's what Paul's saying. Paul says, in reality, there was an external Israel and there's an internal Israel. And the internal Israel are all those who have had their hearts circumcised by the Holy Spirit through the gospel. 
Now, maybe you're new to all this. This is a lot. I think it would help us to consider briefly why God gave circumcision. Um, God did not give circumcision to people so that they would think they were better than other people. That's what, that's what the Jews here were doing. God gave circumcision as a sign, a visible mark that went on the reproductive organ to show that generational corruption had to be dealt with through a bloody judgment. Let me say that again. God put circumcision on the male reproductive organ to show that generational corruption from Adam, generation to generation, would only be dealt with through a bloody judgment. And that if you didn't have heart circumcision, if if your heart was not cleansed from all the corruption and all the filth through a bloody judgment, which we'll talk about, that meant that you would be cut off from God. It had a dual purpose. God promised to deal with the corruption through a bloody judgment, but if not, you would be cut off from the people of God. It was a promise of blessing and a promise of cursing. And every male in Israel that had that covenant sign was to be reminded, I am a sinner and I need the gospel and I need my heart cleansed. That was the point of circumcision. And it's interesting because the Apostle Paul in Colossians will actually tell us that believers in the new covenant have their hearts circumcised through the circumcision of Christ. And what Paul is saying, and you have to listen very carefully, is that when the Lord Jesus hung on the cross, when he hung on the cross, he underwent a cosmic, bloody circumcision when God cut away the filth of his people in the bloody circumcision of Jesus at Calvary. And the Jews who rejected Jesus rejected what the sign pointed to. They rejected what the sign meant. And every male that had that sign should have said, I need the corruption of my heart cleansed through a bloody judgment. And let me say this this morning, you need to know that. When you think about the covenant sign and the covenant promises, you should say, and if you've never said this, you need to do this today, I need the corruptions of my heart cut away in bloody judgment because God said it would only be through a bloody judgment that it would happen, and it happens in the death of Jesus at Calvary. And that that was the circumcision of all circumcisions. And let me say this this morning as we get close to what our culture celebrates as Christmas. We, we reflect on the fact that our Lord, when he was um, born, he was circumcised. The only one who didn't need sins forgiven. The only one who didn't need any corruption cleansed, the only one who had a perfectly pure heart, the only one who deserved all the blessings of God because of who he was, got a sign that says you need sins forgiven because he was representing his people. And that mark that went on the Lord Jesus remained on him until he hung on the cross and fulfilled what that sign pointed to. And if we miss that, and then we miss that only through the preaching of Christ crucified will you get a circumcised heart and a baptized heart, and only will you get new life in him, you miss everything. And if you miss that, you miss everything, and if you miss everything, you will end up exactly like these Jews trying to hold on to something to put you in a right standing with God. 
And I think that this is a difficult passage. That is the big overarching thing that Paul is pressing to and driving to until he finally comes to a point in Romans 3 and he says, now a righteousness of God apart from the law is revealed through faith in Jesus Christ. And then everything else he says is how Jesus has accomplished everything that the law and circumcision could never accomplish and what they pointed to. And that's the point. Don't miss that. It's all pointing to him. It's all moving to him. Do not miss that. And so Paul is pressing this home. And he actually says in an unparalleled moment that in verse 29, a Jew is one inwardly. That what God cares about is regeneration. God wants heart religion in his people. That doesn't mean this sort of sappy emotionalism oh, I just feel God's presence all the time sort of thing. It means a heart that has been transformed and has been resurrected, that has been set free from sin's dominion, that has been washed in the blood of Jesus, a conscience that has been cleansed to serve the living and true God so that your motives, and listen very carefully, how do you know, we said this last week, how do you know whether you've had a circumcised heart? Is your desire to please God or men? Is your desire to please God or men? When you do acts of service, is your desire to be seen by God or seen by men? Paul says that. Notice the end of verse 29, that heart that's been circumcised by the Holy Spirit, that's been born again, is, is one in whose praise is not from men, but from God. That's the litmus test. The litmus test is not, can you rattle off catechisms you learned when you were a child in a church where you were called a covenant kid. That's not the litmus test. The litmus test is, do I want to bring glory to God in my heart or do I want praise from men? Do I want God to get honor in what I do or am I seeking men to say, I like what you did there. I see what you did. That was good. And inside I'm like, yes, yes, I love the praise of men. Or do I fight against that? Because we all have that. We fight against that and say, I want my father to be pleased. I want his son to be glorified. I want him to get the honor and the glory in everything that I do. And if that battle's going on in you, that's a sign that you've received a circumcised heart. Because only those who have had their hearts circumcised through the death of Jesus realize that in their lives. I want to encourage you to be asking yourself those hard questions. When you think of yourself and you're standing before God, what are you holding on to? What are you holding on to? Charles Spurgeon has this great um, sermon on Zacchaeus where he talks about Zacchaeus climbing up in the tree on the branch and and he says, so so do sinners climb up into the branches of self-righteousness. They will find any branch to stand on. And then at the end of the sermon, he says, yonder elderly woman, he says, come down from your branch of self-righteousness. God calls us to come down off of the branches of self-righteousness. He calls us to let go of anything you're trusting in except the Lord Jesus Christ. Any religious privilege, any heritage, any upbringing, any learning. Let me say this, anything you think you've attained to if you are holding on to that and trusting in that and not the Lord Jesus, that is exactly what Paul is disarming in this passage. 
Secondly, Paul tells us that God's external means are meant to lead on to the internal reality of grace. So the question is, well, Paul, are you saying then that the Jews were no different? Because it sounds to me like you're saying they were no different in any way. You've just said Jew and Gentile are the same. You've just told me for their standing before God, all men are under God's condemnation and judgment. Everybody is. It doesn't matter whatsoever. So it sounds to me, Paul, like you're saying that the old covenant people had no privilege in being the old covenant people. And Paul turns like a good pastor and he says, and he takes up that possible objection. What advantage then has the Jew? What is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Now, you have to love this. Paul tells us here that there was benefit now. Now he says there was benefit for those who had circumcision, who were set apart in the Old Covenant. And, and he says in the Greek, first or firstly, and then he never gets to second or third until chapter nine. But the one he highlights, the big one, and this is enormous for us to get this morning, the one that he highlights is that the living and true God spoke only to the Jewish people in the old covenant. What was, what was the profit of circumcision? What was the benefit of being set apart from the world is that the living and true God would speak to you, that he would reveal himself, that he would reveal his plan of redemption, that he would tell you how you could escape the wrath to come, that he would tell you how to be reconciled, that he would give you instruction in his word about lambs being killed and blood being shed for the forgiveness of sin, that he would give you instructions about a priesthood that they could mediate for you and a place where you could go to worship and where God would come and dwell with his people. And he would reveal to you that he would establish his kingdom and that he gave covenant promises that I will be your God and you will be my people. And I will forgive your sins and your iniquity and transgression and that I'll write my law in your hearts and that I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And he gave them promise after promise after promise after promise. And yet for all that, they rejected the very oracles of the living God because they rejected the one in whom all those promises were fulfilled. And Paul, while asking this sort of rhetorical question, is actually continuing to disarm and in essence, he's saying to them, have you forgotten? Have you forgotten that the biggest privilege you have is not a right standing with God because of circumcision? The privilege that you have is that God has revealed the way of redemption to you through his son in the scriptures. And they took the greatest privilege and they threw it away. And they threw it away. Read the book of Acts. At some point, the apostles finally come to a point in facing the unbelief that God says through the apostle Paul, you have shown yourself to be unfit for the word of God. We're going to the Gentiles. Read it. Read the Bible. Read the New Testament. Now, here's the thing we've got to take in. We are the covenant people of God. We have the sign of the covenant. We are baptized. We have been set apart by God. We have been given great privileges and in fact greater privileges because we not only have the old testament we have the new testament and the question is do we understand that the means of grace the scriptures the sacraments fellowship church discipline all of these things are god privileging you so that you will trust his son jesus christ 
Trusting Jesus doesn't happen mystically. Notice that Paul doesn't say, there's no advantage to being a Jew. There's no value to circumcision. It's just no Jesus. He says, to them were given the oracles of God. And I want to ask you this morning, when you think about what you value and desire, and you've got to be brutally honest with yourself. Think about your day in and day out activity. What you do when you get up, what you do at lunch, what you do in the evenings, what you do before you go to bed. When you think about all your activities, what does your life reflect about how you view God's word? I don't mean intellectually. I don't mean theoretically. I don't mean um, it's so wonderful. This is God's word and we have all these Bibles. I mean, how does your life reflect how you view God's word? We've been entrusted with the oracles of God. The very thing Paul is saying to the Jews here, God is saying to us today. And for those that have come to, to have circumcised hearts, not only is whether you're seeking to please God a litmus test, but whether you're abiding in his word is a litmus test. Now, Jesus said, um, you are truly my disciples if you abide in my word. Now, I don't know about you, but I'm convicted even in asking you that question because I know that my heart has divided interest all the time. Things that we delight in, things we want to go do, things we want to say, people we want to be with. And, and what that shows if we're not coming and sitting at the feet of Jesus and we're not abiding in the word is that there's something wrong in our hearts with how we're viewing what's been entrusted to us in the church. Um, It's interesting that the word oracles, oracles of God, is only used four times in the New Testament to talk about the word of God. The oracles um, are the prophetic pronouncements, the very breathed out words of God used four times. And in the book of Hebrews, it is used uh, in the most developed way. And in Hebrews 5, the writer says... um, by this time you ought to be teachers, but you need somebody to teach you again the first, the first principles of the oracles of God. And so what the writer of Hebrews tells us is that it's not sufficient just to read the Bible. Lots of cults read the Bible. Lots of churches with false doctrine read the Bible. And that, but then what the writer of Hebrews says is that the first things of the oracles of God are the things about Christ, the things of first importance, the things of chief importance. You know, Jesus actually said to the Pharisees, because they read the Bible a lot, He said, you search the scriptures because in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they that bear witness to me, but you are not willing to come to me. And so even as we think about the call for us to have the most joyful reception of the privileges we have as covenant members, as baptized members of of Christ's church, are we, when we come to the scriptures, are we coming to them in order to go to Christ? experientially? Or are we coming to them just to say we've read them, our knowledge base has grown, we've been in the word? Again, the writer of Hebrews says, you've forgotten the first principles of Christ. May that not be true of us. May God use this to humble us, 
Let him who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the church this morning. Let's pray. Father, we do need to be humbled under your mighty hand, and we need our hearts to be broken over the many ways that we have trusted in our own activities or privileges, the many ways that we have um, found our identity and poured ourselves into achievements or external acts. And so we ask that you would forgive us and we pray that you would free us from this and that you would hold your son before us. Even as we come to the supper, we pray that you would hold him up before us so that we might cling only to him. Lord Jesus, we thank you that you were circumcised for us at the cross. We thank you for the circumcision of the heart. We pray that you would be at work in us today and that you would take these things in my feeble words and that you would write them on our hearts and that you would cause us to grow in the knowledge of your son, Father. We pray these things in his name. Amen.